Want the same expert advice you get from the pros in the store while shopping online at DiscountTire.com? Meet Treadwell, your personal online tire guide that matches you with the perfect tire for your vehicle. Get your best match in one minute or less with Treadwell by Discount Tire. Hey everyone, it's Ted from Consumer Cellular, the guy in the orange sweater, and this is your wake-up call. If you're paying too much for wireless service, you don't have to keep having that nightmare. Consumer Cellular has the same fast, reliable coverage as the leading carriers for up to half the cost. So why keep spending more than you have to? Seriously, wake up and call 1-888-FREEDOM or visit ConsumerCellular.com. Savings based on cost of Consumer Cellular single line 1, 5, and 10 gig data plans with unlimited talk and text compared to lowest cost single line postpaid unlimited talk text and data plans offered by T-Mobile and Verizon January 2024. You can support this podcast at Patreon.com slash Partners in Crime Media. I'm Rebecca Lavoie, and this is Crime Writers On, the podcast about other podcasts and also about journalism, pop culture, true crime, and this week, a television expose revolving around my favorite cult. So should you watch Scientology The Aftermath? Well, we will talk about this A&E series featuring the Queen of Queens, Leah Remini, and then let you know whether or not we think it's worth your time. Joining me right now is the host of These Are Their Stories, the Law & Order podcast, my true crime co-author and real-life husband, and 100% definitely for real suppressive person, Kevin Flynn. Good evening, Kevin. Hello, Rebecca. <laughs> I'm so excited to be here. <laughs> also joining us is journalist, true crime author, former defense investigator, licensed PI, certified cat lady, and newly minted health and fitness expert, Laura Bricker. Good evening, Laura. Good evening. I like that I have a new thing added to my title. I've taken some slack. I just wrote about how I went on a fitness challenge and I only lost three pounds. The part I didn't include, <laughs> if I had given up the wine, I probably would have lost the 10 pounds. Yeah, probably. That I mean, just wasn't possible. <laughs> <laughs> would it have been worth it, though? That's the bigger question, no. right? But congratulations uh, on not. your three pounds. Yeah, you know, three pounds, which I put all back on since Christmas, so rock uh. on. <laughs> I'm, I was going to say, I'm pretty sure I found him, because you lost him. Also joining us, we have a special guest panelist this week, because Toby Ball is on vacation. Joining us, we are thrilled to have her, is the very prolific crime reporter and online journalist, Amelia McDonald-Perry. Amelia, welcome to Crime Writers On! Thank you. I'm so excited to be here. Yay! Now, Amelia, yeah. you have like a really impressive resume for our show, anyway, <laughs> compared to compared yeah. the four of us. <laughs> First of all, we connected to you in Brooklyn, New York, where you live. So we're going to hear the atmospheric sounds of the mean streets of New York behind you, which is going to be very exciting for us. Screaming, you know, sirens. Yeah. <laughs> Street fights. Mm -hmm. <laughs> <laughs> but you are the founder and former editor-in-chief of thefrisky.com. I know a blog that I read a lot. And, oh, uh, yeah. you know, lately you've been covering tons of crime and pop culture stuff for Rolling Stone magazine. And I think the way our listeners might know you best is you were that sassy reporter at the Adnan Syed PCR hearing. Ah, uh, yes. I was the one making the face at Thero. Yeah, that was me. <laughs> <laughs> that was moi. And I will be happy to do that anytime I see him if I am so lucky. But yes, that was me. But yeah, I used to be, a, I ran a women's website for, God, eight and a half years. And then I can't, I need to stop having opinions on absolutely everything every day. And uh, so I quit and uh, kind of decided to focus on 
what has become kind of like my real sort of passion interest, which is, you know, crime and criminal justice issues and weird investigatory stuff, you know, going down basically like wormholes um, and getting to write about things that I'm obsessed with. So that's what I've been doing for like the last year. And it's awesome. And who doesn't love a good wormhole? I mean, I love a good wormhole. (laughs) I love a great vortex myself. Yeah. Now, you actually, during that Adnan Syed PCR hearing, you know, you, a lot of people were tweeting about you because didn't you like have a little bit of a uh, back and forth with Theo, maybe like on the courthouse steps or something? Didn't you ask him a question? Yeah. Well, after the hearing was over, the um, attorney general, well, Theo, yeah, had like a sort of a little bit of a press conference out front of the courthouse just to sort of like... I don't know, discuss how we felt like the the hearing went. And I was like, well, I got to see this because after sitting and watching the hearing the whole time, I mean, to me, it was like a slam dunk that Justin Brown completely like killed that hearing. And I felt like the AG's office and Theroux, like, you know, they only had two witnesses. It was like more about Theroux getting up in court and sort of just like performing than it was about him actually presenting anything. So I was eager to see how he was going to sort of sell because he's such a like a salesman. And sure enough, he was just selling it like he had won that hearing. Like it was like, it was obvious like that he had held his own and that that the judge wasn't going to overturn anything and that they're confident in their conviction and blah, 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 blah. And I just sort of like stared at him. And I was like, are you serious, dude? I, were we at the same hearing? Are you sure? <laughs> so yeah, that that was what prompted the phase. I just like couldn't believe what I was hearing. It's very strange. It's sort of like Trump-like, the way you watch somebody sort of like, you know, try and tell you that it's raining, <laughs> but it's actually like a blue, sunny, wonderful day outside. And yeah, it was like that. Like you just can't work with somebody like that. I was like, I had to go. And I walked away and I cried at like the 7-Eleven because I didn't <laughs> Oh my God. <laughs> it was so emotional. Oh. I was so angry. I, I also follow you on social media, so I know you also have some thoughts about something that we've talked about a lot in our show. Sarah Koenig's you know, not acknowledging some of the advancements that have been made in the Anand Syed case post her reporting on Serial and her just not talking about that at all. And um, right. what do you think about that? It bothers me because I actually... Th- you know, if it was a simple matter of her not wanting to acknowledge it, I mean, that would bother me too. But I think what I find sort of um, upsetting about it is that I I actually genuinely believe that she hasn't actually listened to Undisclosed for, you know, she, maybe she has by now, but I know that at the hearing, because I talked to her about it, I said, well, have you listened to Undisclosed yet? And she looked, she just kind of was like, no. And to me, I don't know, I find that strange. As somebody who who... I feel like we're similar in a way. Like we both, you know, you get really passionate about a certain subject, story that you're working on. And I can't imagine investing as much time as she did in Adnan's case and then not kind of staying up to date in some way. Not to say that, you know, she's a very busy woman. I know that she was working on season two and then I think she's working on season three now. But I just thought it was it was bizarre that once she was sort of done with her part of the case, she was like disconnected from it, which, you know, would have been wouldn't have been a big deal except for the fact that she was covering the hearing by podcasting from there. And I just sort of, you know, there were so many things that she clearly was not aware of, like updates that had happened in the case that I feel like were essential for her to know in order to her for her to podcast about the hearing and present where the case was at that point accurately. And so that I found really, frankly, kind of like egregious. And I also just felt snobby as hell to me. So and I don't (laughs) like that. So that was I was done with her at that point. Why would you say egregious? I don't know, because I just think that she she is, especially at that point, sort of the source 
of information for people about that case. And she's the paper you know, of record. Yeah. Yeah. And like, I think that at this point, Undisclosed has built up a big enough following. And Robbie has written her book. And, and therefore, you know, a lot of people have sort of realized that you want to know what's going on with the Anand Syed case, you don't go to Sarah Koenig. But at that point, I think that people still did. And so for her to sort of podcast about the hearing without updating herself on the case, I thought was unfair to him. Because the fact of the matter is, is that public opinion does have an impact on how these cases go. I mean, it's attention. It draws in the media. And I think that it, we have a responsibility if you're going to be somebody who, like, makes yourself the sort of the, the, the sort of expert on something to actually maintain your expertise if you're going to kind of continue to, you know, contribute to that that story. That's what kind of bothered me. I hear what you're saying. And I think that, you know, if anything bothered me about it, it was only that she doesn't acknowledge that there's other information out there in any way. She doesn't yeah. she doesn't say, you know, some people say that this cell phone evidence doesn't add up at all. You know, some some other it's almost as if it doesn't exist at all. If, even if she had kept up on it, but didn't agree with it or thought it was BS or whatever, the fact that she's operating and and broadcasting as if it doesn't exist is yeah. is the thing that that kind of bothers me. Kevin, I know that you have an opinion on this, right? Well, yeah. And again, I think I've said, I've said this earlier that I don't think that Sarah owes us anything more on the Adnan Syed case. Oh, I agree. But she did make those podcasts she from did, the yeah, hearing. Which were kind of weird. They were bad. Yeah, and we now know that she was seeking audio tape from the PCR. So I'm not quite certain what was going through her her mind as far as, you know, what ultimately she wanted to get out of that professionally. Were they going to do, pardon the term, an addendum to season one or, or what? So at the time, I kind of thought that she was done with it and her part of, the, of telling the story is over. So... I'm I'm not I'm not you know certain why she went to the PCR now other than I'm thinking that maybe she's like kind of poking around and saying is there something here for us to report on? I'll give you one big reason she went back to the PCR hearing: Mailchimp and (laughs) Audible.com. Oh come on! No no I'm not kidding. This is you 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 can't overlook the fact. No I'm not kidding. You can't overlook the fact that anything serial related that that team does has a big revenue impact on that company. It does. and it's- Yeah, I'm sure that there were people who were like, above who were sort of like, hey, this hearing's going on. Maybe you should go and cover it. And it's possible she was like, listen, I'm really busy. Do I have to? And they were like, yes. And she maybe had to go. Or not had to, but was like strongly encouraged to kind of podcast because they knew it would get a lot of downloads. Right. I mean, now, Amelia, you have been writing about the the series we're going to be talking about the second half of our show, Scientology, The Aftermath. You know, your first story could have been a one-off, you know, column, and then Rolling Stone could have decided, you know what, you should follow this episode by episode, because that story got a lot of views, and we were able to link to our other reporting about Scientology, and they brought it. So it was sort of like, it was worth it for them to have you continue. I don't think there's anything wrong with there being a revenue upside, but... I wouldn't be surprised if that was one of the compelling reasons she went to that hearing and did those little podcast episodes from the closet. But again, if I'm and I'm sorry, I don't mean to interrupt, Amelia. I mean, there's a lot of different podcasts that have been looking at different aspects post serial. And I think that if I were Sarah and I decided I was going to do something, I would stick to what does Adnan's team say? What does Adnan say? Even Rabia, although you know, she's super close to Adnan and is, you know, kind of part of the legal team. That's not 
who's speaking in court. Right. There was right? no Justin Brown right. so, in that in those podcasts. And those episodes. right. So I think she's I gotta hear this from Justin Brown. Right. In order to get a sense of where the case is. And not that, you know, that maybe this is the person who did it and this is the evidence that doesn't fit. And not saying though none of that is is correct or incorrect, but I, I, I think that, you know, I would want to just kind of hear it myself. Now, it, it might be beneficial to know that, well, somebody is saying that this is this and that's going to be part of the argument. Right, right. Well, it, it was interesting and I really enjoyed following your coverage. That was sort of when I became aware of you and your writing. <laughs> and, you. and then I realized that you were that frisky lady. That <laughs> it was honestly kind done. of like a life-changing experience. Like I have to say, like I'd always been kind of into crime and I got, I definitely, the, the serial really got, I was obsessed um, and I just got really into the case. And I had always been into criminal justice issues and I had always been in, sort of interested in wrongful conviction cases, but something about that case definitely like, you know, kicked me in the gut. And then, you know, going down there and actually covering the hearing, and I didn't know anything really about the law. So I was very much like, I had never done this before. I'd never sat in a courtroom and written about legal proceedings before. And I was basically like in court all day and I would go back to my hotel and would stay up pretty much to like two writing these exhausting recaps because because I didn't know very much about the law and I, I really wanted to make sure I got everything as accurate as possible. I mean, I had my opinions for sure. I don't think you could miss them. But I my thing with, with that as a journalist is always like, I'm just gonna I'm gonna give you all the information and along the way I'll probably tell you what I think about it. But at the end of the day you can at least go back and look and say, well, I completely disagree with Amelia's assessment of this information, but she did give me sort of everything that happened. And I think for, for the most part, I think people would agree that that's what I did. My, that was my goal. I wanted to be able to be like, I need to be as detailed as possible, cut off the trolls at the pass, and um, <laughs> like tell them absolutely what every trolls? detail that happened. <laughs> and then if they decide that my assessment of it was crap, well, that's fine. But at least I will have put out accurate information. So. Now, uh, just as a final wrap up on this like serial stuff, I met you for the first time at Rabia Chaudhry's house. Yes. <laughs> and all of those Anand <laughs> people were all there. Was that not yeah. the weirdest thing? I've been to a few of them and it's so <laughs> fascinating because you're like, yeah, you meet sort of people and you're like, ah, it's John Cryer. What's up? And then Susan's there and you're like, hi. And it's all these like disembodied voices coming together in a room and taking form. Um, but everybody's so nice. Justin yeah, Brown. I've friends with Justin. Yeah. He's a, like the loveliest. Him and his wife, I adore them. And they've been, you know, super cool and nice to me whenever I go down to Baltimore for work and, and stuff. So, yeah, it's been I felt like I've met like a new crew of friends, like really, really, truly good people I've met through covering this case. Like some of the the kindest, most good-hearted, ethical people I've ever met in my life I've met through covering Adnan's case and the kind of connected network of people. It's been very gratifying. And me. All the ethical people. Yes, and you. And here I am. (laughs) (laughs) All right. So, Laura, it's been a couple weeks since we've been a chance to talk to you. And I just want to make sure, has your life been okay without the crime writers? Have you you been holding up? Well, I've been surviving this really weird winter we're having here. um, And I'm going to have to lay off the Amazon crime writers purchases for a while. uh, (laughs) Because my driveway right now is just like a luge. 
um, because we've had rain and then it freezes. So the UPS man got stuck in my driveway yesterday. Um, what? I know. It's a very New Hampshire story, yes. <laughs> it is. Um, and then just because I really missed crime, I tried to poison my husband this week. So Okay. Um, okay. <laughs> Stop right there. Nice. What did you use? What happened? But he's a firefighter, so he saved himself. <laughs> no, he's, he's still pretty down. So, well, Kevin and Rebecca and Toby are off gallivanting around on these nice trips. I was um, covering a school board meeting, and I didn't have time to make it's dinner. Like you want to poison yourself. I know. So I just like ran to the local little specialty shop and picked up some pork thing that my husband could throw in the oven. Well, I don't know what was in that pork thing, but the poor guy got food poisoning. So. Oh. oh, boy. Yeah. How'd so you cook the pork? Me of, Just how you like it. Know. Pink in the middle. <laughs> <laughs> he's like, what did you do to me? I'm like, I, I don't know. You know, you better behave, though. Oh. Exactly. Wow. <laughs> Main dish of pork, side dish of trichinosis. Yeah, Everyone exactly. loves that. Well, Kevin and I just came back from an amazing trip to Cancun, Mexico, where... Um, the highlights for me included learning how to do tequila shots for real, not yeah. with a lime and salt, and also getting my feet eaten by a bunch of fish. That was fun in one of those oh. weird uh, pedicure. Yeah, tanks. you go to the airport and stick oh, your you did it? yeah, you stick your feet in like this uh, yeah, fish tank. Real weird. Oh, you did that. <laughs> did yeah, it? she did that. I have been interested in this. What does it oh, feel like, Rebecca? Me. Yeah, it feels like uh, feels like a bunch of fish eating your feet. <laughs> but I have gotten a bunch of uh, negative feedback about it on my Instagram account. People telling me that it's cruel to the fish, that it's unhygienic, what? that you could get all sorts of diseases. All I got to say is I put my feet in the water, not my intimates. And um, <laughs> <laughs> it was a nice way to pass time at the airport. And, you know, if you ever get the opportunity, I'm not going to tell you you shouldn't try it because everyone should be able to tell that story at least I, once. I thought we were in Mexico for almost a week and that was definitely Definitely the cleanest water we saw. <laughs> oh, yeah, yeah. Wait, did it make your feet? What did it? Did it make your feet all smooth? Did it actually work? It was only in there for like fifteen minutes, so I don't. I think it would have taken longer for my feet. I'm from New Hampshire, after oh. all. I'm not exactly <laughs> <the pedicure's laughs> every, every week. <laughs> uh, one other thing I wanted to talk about: listener feedback. We've gotten a ton of emails, and I think this is what we should talk about next episode: the new NPR collaborative podcast called Suspect Convictions. Okay. Uh, I hear that is a podcast that we should rate and review and recommend or not so that's what we're going to be talking about next week so listeners you're not obligated to do this homework anymore but if you want to feel free we're going to be talking about the npr collaborative suspect convictions podcast next week um, right now i'm downloading it i just yeah. started listening today oh, people coincidence oh god another one for me to get yeah to and you know what they did i'm going to give you a heads up they said we're dropping our first episode on the 9th they dropped six episodes at once, which I thought was kind of interesting. It is interesting. There's another podcast I've been listening to, a really great podcast that's very divisive in our house about Billy Joel called We Didn't Start the Podcast. It's actually done by a friend of mine. It's very, very funny, especially if you're not like a huge Billy Joel fan. You'll absolutely love it because it's I think it's divisive because Kevin takes it very personally. Oh, stop. <laughs> but uh, they, they dropped all 13 of their episodes at once, which I found very interesting. And um, their episodes are full of fake ads about fake businesses on Long Island, which is also funny. So anyway, uh, so next week, Suspect Convictions. There's a bunch of other reporting partners on it, but I'm just going to say it's an NPR collaborative podcast. Cool. So now it's time to move on to a little segment that we do where we talk about true crime and what has happened in those stories. What's that called, Kevin? True Crime Podcast Update. Oh, this wasn't a podcast. It wasn't a podcast. Right. Do it again. True Crime 
Updates. <laughs> All right. We'll add some echo to that. It'll be fancy. Burke Ramsey, the brother of Jean Benet Ramsey, just after Christmas filed a lawsuit seeking $750 million against CBS Corp, saying the broadcast company produced a fraudulent documentary that slandered him by accusing him of killing his sister, Jean Benet Ramsey, in 1996. Now, we talked about the earlier lawsuit for mm-hmm. $50 million that Burke Ramsey had filed against Werner Spitz, uh, one of the experts in that documentary. But this was a much more sweeping, much broader lawsuit. Among the claims, I have some highlights here, I won't read them all, is that CBS portrayed this as being a special pact full of forensic experts mm-hmm. who the lawsuit claims aren't really experts. They are media figures who took a point of view that already existed and turned it into a TV show, that they didn't really do a new investigation, and that they took this point of view that existed and was published in a previous book and fleshed it out for this TV show. So the lawsuit raises some really interesting questions. And Amelia, I want to start with you because you wrote a story for Rolling Stone back when the CBS special came out called... Um, um, three big ways the case of JonBenet Ramsey got it wrong. So I'm guessing you were not a fan of that special. I hated it so <laughs> much. I found it so, I mean, so just, ugh. It, I found it really upsetting. And I'm not somebody who was like a diehard follower of this particular case. Um, so it's not like I came into it with like super strong feelings about who I thought killed John Bonet. although I feel like I've started to develop some sort of opinions on it. But what I found really upsetting was their, the way that they sort of determined that this child that had killed his sister was based on, like, really nothing. A lot of really junky science and then just a lot of making up stories in their head. Like, the whole thing of them, you know, Burke killing John Benet over the pineapple. Where did they get that idea? It's like they made it up. It was weird. Yeah, I mean, one of the things you talked about, too, which is one of the things that I think we really kind of criticized on the show was the um, confirmation bias and selective rehearing around oh, those. good lord. <laughs> First of all, that the lawsuit's accurate. It's, I mean, one of the things I reported on my story is about the fact that, like, nothing in the special was actually new. Like, that audio, you know, the whole sort of performance of going to the audio studio and, like, taking out all the background noise and slowing it down, trying to figure out what was said and then putting on the headphones and the realization was... Okay, what they said they heard had already been written about years ago, and they did nothing to the audio that hadn't already been done. I mean, it was literally a performance that they didn't acknowledge as being a sort of performance. That's ethically really shady. Now, you know, one of the things I actually learned a lot reading the Denver Post's recap of the lawsuit. I haven't read. I'm sure it's a very long document, but I did read the Denver Post did some really good reporting on the lawsuit. And one of the things they said, which surprised me, Kevin, and I don't know if you'd heard this before, was that a bunch of tabloids had already speculated that Burke Ramsey was the killer. And he had successfully sued them and settled for monetary libel settlements against tabloids who the Globe, for example, the Star and Globe reported that after showing signs of disturbance, including that he smeared feces in his bathroom, the, quote, squirrely child killed his sister. The New York Post, um, he got a settlement from them for libel. So this wasn't the first time someone took a media bite at the Apple on Burke Ramsey and uh, ended up on the other side of a lawsuit. It, yeah. Is that something that you that you knew before? I, I did not remember that. I think if I had done a deep investigation of Burke Ramsey. Uh, By Googling him? 
that would have come up. Yeah. <laughs> I probably would have been terribly aware that uh, he can be litigious. Uh, but no, but with a case like this that's so well known and people still, you know, are just fascinated by it. And when it's left open and you have someone who is a, a person of interest and there's a lot of circumstantial evidence against them, it's hard for. You, you know, the accusations to come and, you know, cross the line. Where that line is is always sort of hard to find out. And you probably don't usually know it until you've already crossed it. But I, I mean, I, I, I was not in the production meeting at CBS, but I am sure there were a ton of lawyers there. And they thought, okay, this is as clean a version of this as we're going to get. Right, right. Now, Laura, one of the things that really stuck out to me in the lawsuit was the, you know, the lawsuit says that the um, series was fraudulent because it claimed it assembled seven independent, quote, world-renowned investigators to investigate the case from scratch, but the show was based well, they on They asked a, the world and nobody knew them? <laughs> well, no. The, the lawsuit says the show was based on a self-published book by one of the people that he's suing, District Attorney Investigator James Kolar, who this was his theory apparently uh-huh. this this Burke Ramsey oh, theory okay. yeah he was one of the original um, investigators I think it, that the other people on the show uh, Jim Clemente and Stanley Burke that they had worked for the FBI behavioral unit but they're now co-workers at a company called XG Productions which consults on and produces fictional crime films and TV shows including Criminal Minds The Closer and NCIS and though Laura Richards is described as a criminal behavioral analysis trained at New Scotland Yard she also works for XG Productions. Well, I guess what this lawsuit is saying is that CBS represented these people as independent investigators, but they are entertainers. Um, I disagree. You you disagree. Tell me why. Well, I disagree because, I mean, yes, now they're in that field, but these people were all trained in the criminal justice field. They all worked in that field before they broke out on their own and went into the consulting business. So, um, you know, yeah. That's what they're doing now, but it's not changing what their education and their background is and, and why they are qualified to talk about and investigate this case. So, you know, I can see it. Yeah. I mean, obviously, like you remember, this is when I freaked out and started screaming about the house because um, I did not really <laughs> when they reconstructed the house. Would you like to remind our listeners what you're talking about? This is the part, Rebecca. I was just like, are you fucking kidding me? Are you serious? They are, n- they are building a fucking house like I'm sorry and then when they went in and there was the pineapple and the milk on the table they built a fucking house yes this is when I swore and people were very happy that I swore so I was not a huge fan but but you know at the same time they did bring in people that were names that are legitimately known for being involved in cases and I mean to some degree you know, you could say the same thing about people like this that then go on to become expert witnesses in criminal cases. I mean, they're just using their expertise in a different venue. Well, a lot of these people are experts in, in criminal cases. Werner Spitz has definitely been an expert in a number of kind of high profile cases. I think, I don't know if it, he was an expert in the Michael, the one in from North Carolina, the staircase guy. Peterson. Oh, Michael Peterson. Yeah, I don't know if it was Werner Spitz or it was the other forensic doctor guy who did the whole taser demonstration. Yeah, well, Henry one Lee was them. involved in that case yeah, as well. Right, yeah, yeah. yeah. Yes. <laughs> so they're legitimately like paid. I think they are the kind of experts that if you have the money to bring in your own independent experts and you're defending yourself in a trial, like they are the experts that are often called in. But I don't know, you know, how 
legit that science actually is, I think that's sometimes a little bit up for debate. Now, Kevin, I do want to ask you one more question about Mm -hmm. this, because, you know, you have somebody like Henry Lee, who has testified in a lot of real life trials and a lot of real life cases. And, you know, but now he has become a, you know, a celebrity. You have Laura Richards and Jim Clemente, both investigators who now have podcasts and they're producing TV shows and Mm -hmm. are sort of leveraging their expertise into entertainment. You have us. We're, you know, you can argue that we're doing the same thing. (laughs) You sometimes appear on television shows. You get a dossier about a case and you are the expert and you didn't actually investigate the case. I mean, it happens, right? Sure. But do you think that there is something where the public, the general public who doesn't see the inner machinations of these true crime media products, when they watch something like this, they do think they're watching a real investigation. Does the lawsuit have a point there? Perhaps. Yeah. I mean, I think all the stuff about they were professionally trained, but now they're doing network television. Uh, That's very weak. Does the audience think that they're seeing? Yeah, I mean, I think they do think that they're seeing a real investigation. And I think Amelia pointed out sort of, you know, in her writing, where that falls short. If Jim and Laura went into that recording studio already knowing what they're going to hear. What they think they're going to hear. What they think they're going to hear on the (laughs) tape. And they go through the, you know, the process then that's fakery. But if the rest of it is like we have these theories and we're going to put it to the test, you know, using the set that we have, mm-hmm. you know, the cobweb thing. All right. You know, I mean, it's the big fucking fake house, <laughs> fucking fake house, the fake fucking pineapple. Yeah. But I, but yeah, I mean, I think that people watching are thinking that they're seeing a type of investigation. I think that for me, the, the thing I actually found to be the most kind of disturbing, the thing that I think was most upsetting about it, it's, it's less that I'm personally concerned about like, Burke Ramsey. Um, I'm sure he's, you know, doing as well as can possibly be done given his life. Given how weird he is and that he's allegedly a killer. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. Come on. (laughs) But I think that it it contributes to this idea that there, you know, that is already pervasive in the way we look at people in the aftermath of tragedy, that there is some way that is normal to behave and some way that's not normal to behave. You couple that with the fact that Burke was already clearly, I'm just, you know, a different child in some sort of way. And he's clearly a a unique seeming kind of guy now. I don't know what that maybe means in terms of any sort of diagnosis or anything like that. But I think it's incredibly dangerous for those investigators, quote unquote, to watch a video of a child and then determine that he is behaving oddly in the aftermath of his sister dying. And thus, that is evidence of him maybe being a killer. I mean, that's dangerous to other people because it shapes the way it just contributes to the way we view criminals and the way we view how these crimes are committed. There isn't a a sort of longer effect that affects everybody, I think. I completely agree with you. And just before when I made that joke about him being weird, I was putting air quotes around it, which, of course, you can't see in a podcast. (laughs) So just to clarify that for our (laughs) listeners, um, you know, and, you know, the other point the lawsuit makes, which we've talked about on the show many, many, many times, is that Burke Ramsey is a private citizen who has never been publicly named a suspect in the case, was living a relatively normal life and did not ask to become the subject of this basically murder accusation. And that's where a lot of libel claims are successful because he was not a person of interest. He was not named in press conferences by the police. Unlike other podcasts we talked about on the show, he was not a suspect. He was not questioned in the way that, you know, would make him open to this kind of reporting Again, air quotes and uh, less and have a weaker claim for the lawsuit. Yeah. They don't have to prove malice. Right. Which would show that they knew or they had reason to believe that the information was false. 
and they went ahead and broadcast it anyway. Now, one quick question. I don't want to get too deep into this, as we might talk about in the future. Um, is a big trend right now of rehashing these old cases. We talked about that crazy-looking documentary that's coming out with maybe O.J.'s innocent. Uh, but we have seen now a revival of the Menendez brothers. <sighs> Oh, oh, yeah. Yep. <laughs> Loved it. <laughs> Tell us. Quick thoughts, Amelia. I, I didn't, I, you know, I think when that, that case actually occurred, I was just a little bit too young to, to want to marry them it, like all the other. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, exactly. It didn't resonate with me. And then by the time it was going to trial, it was also during OJ time. And OJ was airing on TV at the time that my soap opera was supposed to be airing. So I watched all of the OJ trials. So I totally missed the Menendez brothers thing. So watching... And I was like, you know, vaguely aware of it. But watching the special that was on last week, I was blown away. I mean, the whole molestation thing and then watching them testify, like, was that footage out at the time? Oh, yeah. yeah. I found it completely believable. It was televised. I, I mean, they received marriage proposals. Then there was that amazing interview with Barbara Walters where they were saying, we're just, re you know, regular guys. And she's like who killed their parents. <laughs> yeah. Um, yeah, so that new Law & Order series that's coming out around that case, uh, I'm planning on watching. It sounds like, Amelia, you're going to be enjoying that one as well. Yes, <laughs> for sure. I love that all these cases are being revived. Though. There's a lot of really good cases that, that happened like 20, 25 years pre ago. Pre-social media, sort of uh, pre-our ability to read about it on RollingStone.com 10 minutes after it happened. <laughs> Nobody's gotten to my dream case yet. That's my dream to read. Which is? Which one? Well, nobody better steal this. This is my idea. Nobody take it. Um, <laughs> All right. The Darley Rudier case. She's on death row in Texas for stabbing her two sons. I don't think she did it. Free Darley. <laughs> I don't think it's a case. I'm, I'm sure people from that area are familiar with it, but I'm not familiar with that case. Neither am I. Uh, you would ma maybe recognize her. It was in the sort of the same time period as a lot of like the Susan Smith case. Um, yeah. The sort mm -hmm. of it, it happened at a time where people in the media was really interested in sort of salacious tales of mothers killing their children. Yeah, or I think about, you know, poor Lorena Bobbitt, who her entire <laughs> story became about her cutting off her uh -huh. husband's penis. Uh -huh. Uh -huh. Yeah. Really, she was this victim of, you know, years and years and years of abuse, and she will always be associated as the person who cut off her husband's penis. And then drove away with it and threw it out the window. <laughs> yes, the which, which I know you think is a really good detail. It's a hell of a detail. It's kind of incredible. She's like, you're not getting this back. <laughs> All right. But he did. All right, so uh, no. quick quick round the horn poll. You are a juror in the Burke Ramsey lawsuit. 750 million bucks against CBS. Uh, which way are you going to land? Laura, go with you. Amelia, then you, Kevin. Oh, boy. Um, I, I think he wins, but I don't think he's going to win for $750 million. All right. What about you, Amelia? I don't think he'll win for $750 million either, but I wish it could come straight out of Jim Clemente's pocket. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, sorry, I do. I can't stand him. All right. What about you, Kevin? I think they'll settle before it goes to court, but if it, if it, just knowing everything I know, if I were on that jury, I would probably side with Burke Ramsey. All right. Uh, but yeah, again, I don't know if I would give that whole amount of money because I think I would probably, as they say, you know, give it uh, a haircut because there's nothing like a good shave and a haircut. <laughs> and a good shave you can get is with Harry's.com. Harry's nice. razors are so fantastic. They leave my skin so smooth. Yeah. Smooth and as Burke Ramsey's <laughs> when he filed that lawsuit. As smooth. <laughs> Oh, well, let's see. Let me just, I don't see that in my notes. <laughs> you know, everyone thinks there's like a Harry's. There's no Harry, though. No. It's actually two guys, Jeff and Andy, 
No, I'm serious. The, the, these are the, you know, the disruptors. These are the guys who had the idea about... Probably you know, like Harvard Business School or something. Yeah, they, got, they were getting sick and tired of getting ripped off about the price of razors. Yeah, they, of they, all they were things. trying to go to CVS and having to wait for someone to open that stupid plastic thing and get their stupid razors. Yeah, so they started Harry's to fix that. They bought their own factory. And so by taking like less of a profit selling directly over the internet, they're able to offer blades at half the price. So it's just about like $2 a blade compared to the $4 you'll pay at the drugstore minus the uh, time off of work that you have to spend waiting <laughs> for the clerk to come over with his giant key ring. To open that stupid plastic thing. Yeah, to open the stupid thing. Yeah. So uh, why is Harry so great? Hey, five precision blades. If only Toby were here and he could talk a little more about how smooth his face uh, is. I'm here. I'm Italian. I shaved my legs with the Harry's and it's pretty damn great. Did you? Yeah. I, I'm going to try that. I gave them up for Christmas this year. So, um, you know, I have made use of the Harry's. Ladies, it's okay. You can use the Harry's razor. It's fantastic. Maybe they should go with a Harriet because it's pretty friggin' great. The Harriet. <laughs> oh, oh, that's a good idea. I like Genius. It. Yeah, yeah. And you know how they give like each of their packages like different names? That could be the Tubman. <laughs> no, okay. Harriet Tubman. Right? <laughs> There's different, it has different imagery for me. But okay, I, I just yeah. <laughs> Do you know the Harriet? I don't you know. Can, <laughs> go, don't know. Just okay. go with Harriet the Spy. Harriet the Spy. Yeah, okay. No, when you're shaving your legs, the Spy is not something you want jumping into your mind. <laughs> no. But Harry's no. is so confident in the quality of their blades uh, that you want to get your first shave set for free. That's right. You heard that right. Free. Just free. Just cover shipping and handling when you sign up. Plus, as a special offer to fans of our show, you go to Harry's.com right now and enter code. Crime at checkout and get a post shave bomb also free. So you'll get the blades, the handle, and the rich lathering shave gel and a, and a travel blade cover, which is good if you're going to be taking your Harry's to the hospital to when can- you get food poisoning. No, to Cancun. So you look good. F- <laughs> you look good for all the senoritas. So go right now to Harry's.com. That's Harry's H A R R Y S.com. Code crime. 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 Anything else? No, I mean, that's just what makes uh, men look good. What makes ladies look good. I think it's new hair color from Madison Reed. Yeah, I actually just got my Madison Reed box today. I'm super excited about that. Yeah, I know. Here, what do you want? You want the script? I'll I'm take not, it. I'm, not hold, I'm pulling it away from I can re- talk about Madison Reed. I've used it. You haven't. You, you have your salt and pepper situation over there. Did you know, Kevin, that over 100 million women color their hair each year? 100 I, million. I did not know that. No. But that's not the most surprising part. The most surprising part is the basic chemistry of hair color has barely changed in the last 100 years. That is until Madison Reed came along. If you haven't heard of Madison Reed, well, it's the future of hair color. It believes in a better way. Beautiful, natural, healthy-looking hair like mine. The hair color is made in Italy just outside of Milan, according to strict EU standards that require complete transparency. Now, a lot of the other hair colors have like all these different chemicals and things like ammonia and Parabens. Parabens. Here, say, say that I, one. Say that one. Uh, Resorcinol. Resorcinol, PPD, the kind of stuff that I don't know. I they, didn't go to college for chemistry. It's the kind of stuff that makes you like not able to catch the fish because the fish are all full of that chemical and it makes you like sick and stuff. Oh, yeah. That stuff's in hair color. But anyway, not in Madison Reed. So if you're looking for gorgeous hair color, 
made with ingredients that have integrity. Go to madison-reed.com. Take their hair color quiz. Find your perfect shade. You don't need an appointment with your lady that will take you six weeks to get. So if you're looking for gorgeous hair color made with integrity, go to madison-reed.com. Take their easy color quiz. Find your perfect shade. Get 10% off plus free shipping on your first kit using promo code WRITERS. That's madison-reed.com. Promo code WRITERS. Satisfaction Writers. guaranteed, and your hair will look just like mine. No, not really. It looks like yours, but better. <laughs> <laughs> Madison-Reed.com. No, but I got to tell you, I really do there like it. I do. I wouldn't say I did it if I didn't. Well, your hair always looks good. Your hair is like, I'm like, I wish my hair always looked good like that. Laura, it's all I got, okay? <laughs> <laughs> That's not all you got going for you. Rebecca with the good hair. I'm oh, my God. Hat. Right now she has a sweatshirt that says, I'm Becky with the good hair. I do. I'm wearing it right now. <laughs> Wow! I knew it. That's all I got, Laura. I'm gonna be. I'm gonna be tweeting. You've got so many things. You've got the firefighter husband. You've got the farm sink. You've got the bucolic country lifestyle. You know, Amelia's got the metropolitan (laughs) law and order street. I've got the high rent. Yes, all I've got is this hair. Damn it! Exactly. I like it. Thank (laughs) you, Madison-Reed.com. Use the code Writers. Okay. Now I want to move on to the reason we're all here. Except, of course, for Kevin, who is terrified. He'd rather be anywhere <laughs> but here. Uh, we are now going to discuss the A&E series, Scientology in the Aftermath. So should you watch it, listeners, we will let you know what we think. But first, a brief but important disclaimer. The church challenges the credibility of the contributors appearing in this program and their statements. As of the airing of this episode, the church has not agreed to participate. Information the church provided about matters discussed in this series can be viewed at www.crimewriteron.com. <laughs> if, yeah, because by the way, the Church of Scientology, as we have learned from watching this series, they'll come at you if you talk about them. So one of the reasons why Kevin wasn't so game to do so, but, you know, I think it's fine. Everything here is alleged, right? We all agree? Yeah, allegedly. <laughs> But let's talk about this special. Now, for our listeners who don't know, Leah Remini, of course, was a huge TV star and a longtime, very vocal advocate and spokesperson for the Church of Scientology. She, along with other celebrities like Kirstie Alley and uh, John Travolta, John Travolta, Tom Cruise, Dharma from Dharma and Greg, <laughs> Jenna Elfman, Beck, Beck, lots of. Yeah, lots of good people, you guys. Yeah, Giovanni Ribisi, uh, Scientologist. I, I guess Steve Miller. I, oh, remember I that, that they one. came out. Isaac in the, Hayes. Isaac oh, Hayes. Isaac Hayes. That's right, because yeah. that South Park episode yeah. he was not uh, enjoying. Elizabeth, whatever, who from Mad Men, who plays um, Peggy. Moss. Elizabeth oh. Moss is a Scientologist. Yep. What? Yeah, she, she grew up in the church. Wow. Mm-hmm. Well, Leah Remini uh, broke with the church in 2013, and so here we are. And if you're not familiar with Leah Remini, I just want to give you a tiny taste of who she is, what she sounds like. Here's a clip of a promo trailer from the series, Scientology, The Aftermath. What's the Church of Scientology so afraid of? These are just some of the things the church said about me. Any viewer should know a program about our religion hosted by Miss Remini is doomed to be a cheap reality TV show by a has-been actress now a decade removed from the peak of her career. Miss Remini has become what she once declared she never wanted to be known as, this bitter ex-Scientologist. She needs to move on with her life instead of pathetically exploiting her former religion, her former friends, and other celebrities for money. When you stop people's lives and families, I'll stop too. 
Now, you have been covering Scientology, the aftermath for Rolling Stone magazine. And Amelia, I have to say your articles, five things we learned about Scientology in this week's episode (laughs) of Scientology, the aftermath. (laughs) Not only are the excellent prep material for a podcast in which you're going to talk about the series, but (laughs) you really do a good job covering the width and breadth of the details that come out. Um, But let's talk about Leah Remini herself for a second. love her. Is she the most unlikely or likely advocate to put something like this together? What do you think? I think actually it's so interesting. You know, she has the kind of personality where I'm actually sort of surprised that she was brought into the fold kind of as much as she was because she she strikes me as being like very opinionated, very strong-headed, very strong-willed. And that kind of thing doesn't go over so well in a church where you're supposed to be essentially sort of super subservient to one person at this point. And, you know, they she's the exact wrong person for them to have kind of pissed off. I love her. She's like, I'm going to leave and I'm going to take the whole church down with me. I love her. Right. Yeah. But doesn't that also make her, Kevin, like a great person to have on your side? Because when you see those old clips of her talking to reporters about Scientology, she's using that same sort of no-nonsense, no-bullshit thing when she talks about the church like yeah yeah the world's a better place because the church is here and if you don't think that there's something wrong with you can can you see why they would want her on their side yeah you know i actually think that uh what makes her powerful is that she has the access to the other people that she's profiled because instead of a lot of i don't know how to describe lower level everyday scientologist you know she's able to bring in people who were in the inner circle. And Mike Rinder is right. one of them. Yeah, he's right. the main one. So that they could, you know, share their recollections and their alleged tales of what happened when <laughs> they were... <laughs> it's so afraid. When, when they were in Scientology. Now, now if, if I were a Scientologist... And left, no one would care. <laughs> they, they would. Your family would care. My apparently. family would care. <laughs> yes. Then if I tried to, to call up some of these other folks and you know and say, would you come on my podcast? They probably wouldn't. But Leah Remini can get them. So she's as a convener, she's great. Now Laura, she actually reminds me of you quite a bit in sort of an unexpected <laughs> way. Give me the nails. No, not the nails and the and the Louboutin shoes. I love love. One of my favorite things about the series is whenever she has to read a church statement about discrediting the episode that they're about to do about what's wrong yes. with the, you know, that the church puts out statements about everybody that, that she's profiling in the show and about her. And they're always yeah. the and same, she, like, puts by her glasses the way. On. Yeah, yeah. They're always the same. This is what the church has to say about so-and-so. And Leah Remini sits there in her full hair, full makeup, an incredible, incredible Brooklyn, not new, cool, hipster Brooklyn, but old school Brooklyn nails, puts on her smart glasses and then reads the statement. <laughs> and she just, does not give a fuck yeah. about the whole thing. And Laura, you love fighting the man. So can you not relate to this? Oh, no, I can relate to this because, you know, I went through my own fight the man with the Scientology people. Um, so I, I appreciate that. And um, you can know. you give us a, re- a refresher on that story? It's been <laughs> yeah, a while what does that since mean? you told yeah. me the story. Well, I'm going to tell you, I actually pulled it up. So this was a long, because I'm watching this, and now this show, we're seeing a lot of the high-level people leaving, and there's a lot more being said publicly. So this is back in 1998. I was a brand-new reporter, and I was covering these little towns in New Hampshire out in the county. That was, like, my first beat. So just out in the middle of nowhere, uh, there was a retired investment banker named Robert Minton, 
And he had become very upset about this woman, Lisa McPherson, who we heard about in the show, Mm -hmm. um, who had been locked up and she died. And he became, he started, he was just like troubled by this. And he started helping people leave the church at that time. And so at that time, I think that, you know, to me, seeing the people leaving now, in 1998, people weren't leaving like they're leaving now. They were two years into their billion-year contract, Laura. They couldn't leave. (laughs) They were. Oh, yeah. (laughs) (laughs) Um, Yes, and he told me, I I haven't seen this in the show yet, but um, the the whole basis, the background, you guys know about this, the the whole basis of Scientology was that Xenu, the evil galactic overlord, did we talk about this at all, controlled nine planets in this section of the galaxy 75 million years ago, and then he decided to do a little population control by wiping out 7 billion people. Yeah. Um, And then Xenu injected the bad people with glycerol and alcohol, froze them and sent them in rocket ships to TJAC. TG? That's where they're from, yeah. Yeah, the Scientologists came for Earth. Earth. Yeah, and then he deposited them in volcanoes. Um, It's just crazy. So anyway, so this guy was out in Sandown, which is this very small town here in New Hampshire, at his summer home. Um, hiding some of the people that had left the church and the church kept coming out and protesting and it was getting to be very confrontational and so you know one night he went out in the middle of the night in his bathrobe and fired off a shotgun which is very New Hampshire (laughs) Um, and they filed charges against him and so it just became this ongoing thing for about six months where I would get these phone calls like the Scientologists are back again in Sandown and I would go out there and They'd be like, we're protesting this man. He is evil. And, um, you know, it, so it's that was my little brush with Scientology. And then they did give me the uh, CD of their brainwashing subliminal messaging music, uh, alleged brainwashing, <laughs> which I burned. Was your brain actually washed? <laughs> and, they, and they tried to get you to get into their car. They did. Right? And I'm trying to remember. I, I think they were going at one point I had gone to the police station because I heard they were coming out to protest. And they, they showed up in their car and they're like, do you want to ride? We're going to protest. We're the Scientologists. And I'm like, I, and I, I don't think I got in the car. I can't remember if I got in the car with them. I may have gotten in the car with them. Stranger danger. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I hope you didn't tell your mom about that afterwards. <laughs> but Especially I know this is when they, Scientologists. <laughs> <laughs> they did. Get, this is the day they gave me the CD. And they're like, here's a CD of our music. One of the things that I have found really fascinating about this series is that that whole story that, that Laura just told about the origin story of Scientology, mm-hmm. it's not focusing on that. And I, I think it's because you could tell that origin story about any number of religions and, and characterize and say it's, you know, crazy or whatever. It is instead focusing on the church as a scam and as a cult and as a, you know, divider of families. She talks about the tactics. The tactics seem to be a big focus in this series. And in terms of the the religion stuff and right. the belief stuff and the way that they sort of get people to advance, it's very much like joining a corrupt karate school where you just pay and pay and pay <laughs> yeah. yeah, and get more lessons. I loved the episode where she showed the bridge to total freedom and exposed it. Oh my God, I want that as a poster for my wall so bad. Yeah, Amelia, has that struck you, how much focus there's been on tactics and the scam and the monetary stuff and how much more credibility that gives sort of this side of the story? I think it's actually really, really important. Well, first of all, I think, first of all, the Xenu story has been on the internet now for a very very long time so I feel like everybody it's kind of like the go-to joke when people want to make a joke about Scientology they talk about Xenu and it is a completely kooky I mean it's actually kind of a fantastic little like short story but um as a creation story for the basis of a religion it's a little but it's it's as I suppose maybe as kooky as any religion origin story I think the thing that is 
often kind of ignored because people are so busy spending time sort of making fun of Scientologists, like, haha, how can you possibly believe that? Is it's missing the fact that it's a cult that uses genuinely like abusive tactics to indoctrinate people and then control them. And, you know, the Xenu thing is harmless compared to what they actually do to people who work for the church, um, especially. If you're a sort of public member who, you know, maybe you get kind of, you get manipulated, I suppose, into, you know, giving money to take more courses. But the people who really, really, you know, bear the brunt of the abusive tactics that the church, you know, uses are the people who work for them. And these are often people who have been in the church almost their whole lives, you know, who grew up in the church. They get pushed into working for the Sea Org. I think people need to remember, like, leaving the church is, it's not unlike leaving an abusive relationship in the sense that you are cut off from, you know, what they do is they cut you off from your friends and family. And so when you leave, you have no support system. And then on top of that, you have these people who, if you worry for the Sea Org, you're working like 100-hour weeks for like, you know, $10. Like legit. You get paid no money and you work all the time. So people who leave the Sea Org, some of them don't have bank accounts. Or education. Um, they never went to school. Or educations. And then, you know, their resumes, when it's time to go out and get a job in the real world, it's like, what are they going to put? Like a bunch of church like work. I've been wondering where, that. that they can't they can't use references. Yeah, you know. Yeah, I've been wondering that about some of the folks we've seen on the show because, yeah, I mean, you see Mike Rinder, who was the former like head spokesperson and head, by the way, like heavy of Scientology, mm-hmm. the enforcer. Mm-hmm. He's now out and is a yeah. very very out word-facing, defiant spokesperson against Scientology. You have David Miscavige's dad. Mm-hmm. Poor Ron. Um, that was interesting. Who, yeah. by the way, learned about the corruptness of Scientology by Googling Scientology. Which is, <laughs> that, was, that was crazy. On a, on one of those book reader things. What is it called? A, a, on a Kindle. Kindle. Using WhisperNet, apparently. Yeah. So amazing. Oh, my God. Like, think about that. That's, like, crazy. Yeah. I mean, you have legit people who you imagine maybe could have written a book or somehow were able to support themselves. All I keep thinking about are all the other people, a couple of whom we've seen interviewed on the show, like, how did they were they able to pull their lives together, buy a house, and make a living after leaving this church? I know that. I mean, I I don't I haven't talked about this yet on on your show, but I, the way I kind of came into covering Scientology is, um, I God over a decade now, I was um the research editor on a book about Scientology written by Janet Reitman, who's a, a Rolling Stone contributing editor. Um, so I worked for her for ten months, kind of like organizing her files and and transcribing all her interviews with people. It's a brilliant book. It's called Inside Scientology. Everybody should read it. Yeah, and excerpts of it have been published in the magazine. Rolling Stone did some of the most groundbreaking reporting on Scientology among any publication, I think. Yeah, and Janet spent like years kind of working on this book. And so one of the things I had to do was transcribe the interviews with a bunch of these ex-Scientologists. And a few of them have appeared on the show, but at the time that I was working on the book with her, like Mike Rinder was still in. He was like a completely different person at that point. You know, he was he was the muscle for the church. Um, so it's funny to see him on the show now and see what a kind of pussycat he is. But it was interesting actually listening to these interviews that she had done because they, there were people who would sort of talk about what their lives are like now out of the church. And, you know, there were people who were really high-ranking members who were doing really important work within the church, like executive-level work. It sounds like they were great at their jobs under a tremendous amount of pressure. And, you know, they walk out. And I remember one of them, I remember distinctly, he had been like an executive in the church and he left and he was like working at the post office, like sorting mail, because that was the job he could get with his, just the resume he had. Because 
let's face it, you walk into a job interview and like you can be like, I was an executive for the Church of Scientology. And people are going to be like, and no, sorry. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> I mean, I think if there's one piece missing from the show, I think she's tried and she's told the story a few times. I want to know, and Laura, I don't know if you've wondered the same thing. Now, Leah Remini wasn't a celebrity when she went to the into the church. Her mother was a Scientologist, right? But they have they are pretty good at attracting celebrities. I think they use this sort of cloak of good works. But how do regular people? What do they want out of it, Laura? Do you have that same question that I do? Like, what is the attraction here? I don't know. I think it's it's you know people that maybe are missing something in their life, or they they feel like they need some sort of structure that they don't have, or they buy into some of the marketing that the church does. I was I actually had lunch with a friend today, and she was talking a friend of hers who was a journalist, uh, you know, years ago before all of this started to come out as much as it is now, went to go tour the church just to be like, oh, I'm a person off the street who's interested and um, started asking questions and was like, so how much does it cost me to get to the going clear level? And the person just kept saying, it will cost you Alexis. And she's like, "Uh, uh, like a car? It will cost you Alexis. So I, I don't. I, just I don't, tell me they're talking it, about a car, and she didn't have like a daughter named Alexis. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, I have no idea. So I don't know. I mean, I think it's you know you hear about people getting sucked into these things. I had a cousin who got taken in by the Moonies once. Remember the yeah. Moonies? <laughs> yeah. Well, there are a lot of hippie stories with Scientology. Like parents yeah. are hippies. Yeah. Early on, it was very much like that. It attracted yeah. a lot of hippies. Yeah, it was like it was like that Est program, like this sort of enlightenment. I think it was more fun back then, though. That's the thing. Well, like Elmer was... Hubbard had a ship, and like <laughs> everybody wore like you know he had his own like Commodores messengers, and they got to wear like outfits. Like it, it seemed at least a tiny bit more fun, right? And like a little bit, you know, rebellious and. You know, I, I don't think it's ever been particularly cool, but like now it is like it is the religion for boring narcs who right. want to like turn in their friends for things. That's what I want to ask you about, Kevin. I want to ask you about what we have seen and learned not only in this show, but also in the HBO documentary Going Clear that we talked about a couple years ago. The difference between the L. Ron Hubbard regime yeah. and what we've seen happen with David Miscavige. Like, what do you see when you see this imagery, when you see this guy, when you hear him talk, and when you hear about the way people talk about him? Let me put it in terms that I can relate to as a non-practicing Catholic okay. and the church and how it is shaped by its leader and how uh, I think a lot of people understand that the church under Pope Benedict is very different than it is under Pope Francis. A lot of people know who Pope Francis is, and he has been much more, for lack of a better term, sort of open and approachable Whereas Benedict seemed to be a little more reserved and more about sort of the the mystery and the mysticism of the church and and the very sort of old school, hardline conservative Catholic, Pope Francis, who was a Jesuit, mm-hmm. right? So he ha- has this whole other sort of philosophy, and it has shaped the way that people view their church. Mm-hmm. So it does make one wonder after the death of L. Ron Hubbard what direction Scientology might have gone in with a different leader. Mm-hmm. It doesn't mean that, you know, there wouldn't still be, you know, the the testing where you hold the E-meter. The, uh, the E-meter. The cans. The cans, that's it. Yeah. The cans, and, and and then there would be this, you know, scale where you got to go up, and then... It, Can you imagine someone making Leah Remini with those nails hold those cans for like six <laughs> hours? 
Seriously. And also, like, the exercises they have to do where they have to go, like, walk over to a wall and poke it, like, over and over again for yeah. five yeah. hours. Or yeah. go to a camp and work. Leah Remini on The King of Queens making millions of dollars a year. <laughs> right. Everyone is going to their private island during the show break, and she's going to Clearwater, Florida to work, like, in a book factory. Seriously. What's it's crazy. It? It's terrible. I'm just still traumatized about the whole silent birth thing. Oh, yeah. God. Oh. <laughs> yeah. Is that a problem? The baby's drinking barley water. Yeah. Katie Holmes had to have a silent birth. And then we hear about all these family control measures, of course, that people allege that the church. Well, is this doing. is the thing about this show in particular. You're right. And they, they have stayed away from. You know, the origin story and sort of the the catechism about what you can do and, and that, and instead focused on two things, which is the alleged pyramid scam set up of if you want to advance to another degree, you do this, you do this test, you go up, you go up. Uh-oh, there was a problem with the text way back down at this lower level. You have to go and do it all over again right. and keep paying money. It's like and, corrupt karate school. Right, and that's a red flag to a lot yeah. of people. And then it's also the allegations of abuse and other sorts alleged of- Alleged abuse? Alleged, it's an allegation, <laughs> right? Sorry, I'm just making I can't say an allegation of alleged abuse. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it's all these stories uh, that uh, these suppressive people are saying about- David Miscavige and about the way he's run the, the organization where it is alleged that people cannot see other members of their family if they're no longer in the, the church or they want to leave the church or they don't believe in the church. It's also alleged and that he the beats the shit out of people. It, right. And the alleged treatment of people and families. Right. I think that that's what is, is the thing that draws the rest of us into looking at that. Right. I took comparative religion when I was in school. I'm interested, you know, somewhat in Buddhism and somewhat in, in Islam and somewhat in uh, Mormonism, but I'm interested in this in a completely different way. Because they have so much real estate? Is that why? Because they have so much real estate. They really do. Yeah. <laughs> they have so much real estate. I think it's similar. It's sort of similar to Mormonism, though, in the sense that, like, it's a religion that we've seen in our relatively our our lifetimes it's being born right you know correct um in a way that we we don't have for for islam or for christianity so we can sort of look back at and see like wait human being created this like came up with it in their head right like yeah. come on well, like the and first we, 300 years of christianity are very different than the following right two but, millennia and yeah. we and we've seen mormonism evolve so much in the last 40 years you know where they changed mm. their origin story to now black people are okay and you know there's back and forth you on, just got that from the musical That's no it's actually you. true no our, I'm going to beep out his name. Our very good uh, Mormon, ex-Mormon friend gave us a lot of intel in Mormon church. And, you know, he's he watched it evolve from the inside. And Mormons are making decisions about whether or not to stay mm -hmm. based on that evolution. And Scientologists allegedly are not allowed to make those same decisions. Now, Amelia, we've seen all of these um, disclaimers on the show. They have to post the church's responses. They have, and I think, a brilliant move, which makes the show so much better. Instead of posting the church's feelings about the particular people, Leah Remini reads them, which is just so great. Now, you also have on your stories about the series disclaimers from the church. And in a couple of the stories, it says, you know, our publication reached out to the church and they provide us with a statement. Have you had any experiences with the church since you began covering the series, Scientology of the Aftermath? No, actually, I haven't. And I have to tell you, I have never had anything shady happen to me. And like I said, I've been writing about the church for a long time, for 
other places. Um, and like I said, for 10 months, I was working on this book. And during that time period, you know, they never tried anything with me. I've written about the church ever since. And I've never I've never had anything sort of negative happen. Um, I've heard of them being sort of harassing of certain journalists. You know, knock on wood, I don't suddenly get like somebody banging on my door and harassing me. But I sometimes really feel like when it comes to the harassment of certain people, especially journalists at this point, their bark is bigger than their bite, honestly. Well, I would just want to ask you guys each a question and then have you just weigh in. What is the most shocking thing that you've seen on this series or heard about on this series, uh, Scientology of the Aftermath? And would you recommend our listeners watch the series if they have not yet so far? So, Laura, I'm going to start with you. Most shocking thing that you have heard or seen? And would you recommend the series to our listeners? I don't know. There's so much that's shocking. It's hard to pick one thing. I think one thing that really disturbed me was the, the, the way that they take them out on that boat and basically hold them hostage while they're, you know, studying for the final level. But overall, for me, I think the thing that I guess is shocking to me is the fact that the church isn't I don't want to say crumbling, but that, that more is not happening to it with all these high level people leaving the church, that this is not becoming a much smaller church than it started out as. Um, I would definitely recommend watching it if you're interested, because it's one of those topics, you know, for me, I get sucked in. It's, it's something that I would definitely recommend. What about you, Amelia? Most shocking detail that you have learned about in this series? And would you recommend that our listeners uh, take a watch of Scientology The Aftermath? Oh, well, first of all, yes, I think people should watch it. I think it's fantastic. Like, I really think it does a really good job of conveying what Scientology is without getting too mired in the details and also really kind of conveys why it's it's kind of compelling to people, like what sucks in people and then also how just abusive it is inside. Um, in terms of most shocking thing, you know, because I've covered the church for such a long time, I knew a lot of this stuff. I guess it's just been really kind of illuminating to see just how many people have left in recent years and are continuing to leave and who have all sort of the same similar awful stories, that it's not just a handful of people who have had really abusive experiences, that it is like literally anybody who's worked for the church has had a really awful time. Yeah, my favorite thing about watching the series is not the shocking bits. It's watching who is taking down the Church of Scientology. Leah Remini, an unlikely and compelling, compelling crusader, whether or not you think the church should be allowed to do what it's doing and, my, and we should mind our own business or not. She is an interesting person to be doing this fight and trying to take them down. And I do think, to Laura's point, there have been people on the show who've made the case that the church is not all that it looks like it is with the amount of real estate, especially that oh, they own. Oh, for and sure. Perhaps membership is dwindling. It'll be very interesting to see what happens. Yeah, especially after this series. But yeah, if our listeners, if you're interested in Scientology, if you've ever seen headlines in National Enquirer and just want to know a little bit more, interesting place to look this series. What about you, Kevin? You know, a lot of the really shocking things to me were, were actually things that I already knew about from the Going Clear documentary. Those things include the church's war with the IRS over its nonprofit status, which I think is really important. The life of L. Ron Hubbard and his journey from science fiction writer to religious figurehead. The thing that was really interesting to me that, that I didn't realize is exactly how much money the members of the church spend on their religious training, which is all of these books that they buy in the tapes. You know, when you say that it's thousands and thousands of dollars, if they are a nonprofit, you know, there are still rules where you, you can't sit on at the end of the year too much money. 
so it has to go somewhere, and it's going into real estate that they don't really need. Yeah. Um, it's just sort of establish a big footprint. So if the question is, do I recommend for our listeners to try Scientology The Aftermath, then I say, yes, I think you should definitely bite into this one and savor it. Just like you might savor a meal from Hello Fresh. Oh, is it weird that I didn't see that coming? I didn't see it coming. You're so blind, Rebecca. <laughs> I'm not blind to your fear of Scientology. I see it all over your face. You're not, but you are not blind to my enjoyment of a great meal. You do and have good food. The folks from Hello Fresh really celebrate fresh ingredients and the the magic of making food in the kitchen. It's great because with HelloFresh pre-delivered to your door, you get a box that contains ready-to-make meal, all the ingredients that you need. Everything is pre-portioned. And what I also like about it is that we get the kids to make this meal. Oh, yeah. They can become our slaves. (laughs) They can become our little Sea Org members in the kitchen making our meals for us. Everything is there. HelloFresh gives you different options for their their customers. The classic box or the veggie box. And pretty soon coming the family box. So you can order three or four or five different meals every week for either two or four people. And they're creating new recipes all the time. Everything is there. the, The whole meal kit. And it makes cooking fun and easy. Now, Laura, just like the rest of us on the panel, you have tried the meals from HelloFresh. I have. And you know what? The thing that was great about them was they come with these recipe cards that are very easy to follow. And I had my husband cook for me Ah. um, because I am usually the one cooking and I actually relinquished the kitchen. Um, So we had a pork chop and it had, I think, some sort of a simple little pan sauce to go with it. But it was easy to make and it was tasty. And the thing is, it's like... Now you don't have to worry about what are you going to cook. It was quick, it was easy, and it was something that anybody could do. So, you know, my husband, he, he did a good job. Yeah, the, the meals are really designed to take, you know, fewer than 30 minutes to make. So you're not spending the whole time in the kitchen, even though it's a lovely experience. You feel like you're one of those cooks on television when you have everything separated out. Mm-hmm. It's all delivered to your doorstep in a special insulated box. And for listeners of Crime Writers On, you can get $35 off your first week of deliveries. Just visit HelloFresh. Fresh.com and enter crime 35. Crime 35? 35. Crime 35. Crime 35. That's your age, Rebecca. God willing. God willing. <laughs> HelloFresh.com. Crime 35 at checkout. That's the promo code Crime 35. Crime 35. I think I've said that several times now. Now it's time to move on to my favorite part of this podcast, a little something I like to call the Crime, crime of, of the, the Week. week. This is an homage to our own Toby Ball, who is not with us this week, because our crime of the week comes from near his hometown of Syracuse in Wayne County, otherwise known to our guest Amelia McDonald Perry as Upstate New York. Upstate. (laughs) (laughs) The place where all my married friends live and never invite me. In Upstate New York, where two weeks ago, a 43-year-old man did his part to support print journalism. How? Joseph Talbot of Newark, New York, not New Jersey, bought between 900 and 1,000 copies of his local newspaper (laughs) over New Year's weekend. And at $1.25 a pop, it was no small purchase. But as it turns out, Mr. Talbot may have had an ulterior motive with that purchase. You see, he had been arrested for driving while intoxicated after driving erratically and after getting pulled over, failed multiple field sobriety tests. After being brought to a state police office, Talbot refused to give a breath sample and would not let troopers take his fingerprints or photo, saying he didn't want to end up in the local newspaper. Oh, well, guess what? (laughs) He was then charged with second degree obstructing government administration in addition to the DWI charge. 
And the plot is even more thickened by some clues found on Mr. Talbot's LinkedIn page, perhaps. It turns out he's a VP of an insurance and banking company. So, yes, Uh. maybe a DWI conviction could be better kept under the radar. According to Ron Holdraker, the editor and owner of The Times of Wayne County, Newark, New York store clerks say they saw Talbot buy hundreds of copies of the newspaper over the weekend. It's estimated he did the purchasing at eight different locations. According to police, he's scheduled to appear in the town of Palmyra Court on February 1st. So, so if that was the Twilight Zone episode, like he would go <laughs> and he'd buy all the copies and he'd get the last one. The editor would say, we sold so many copies of this issue, we went to a second printing. Exactly. A million more. A million more. So, panel, here's my question for you. Laura Bricker, do you think this purchase was, in fact, an attempt by Mr. Talbot to keep his arrest under wraps? Or do you think he could have had another reason to buy 1,000 copies of his local newspaper? What do you think? Um, I think he was still drunk um, when he went <laughs> out to buy the paper. <laughs> Allegedly. Allegedly drunk. Um, yeah, no, it clearly was. I mean, unless he had a really big paper mache project that he was working on. I mean, that, <laughs> yeah. that could be the only other thing. We are currently working on the volcano project in my house, so it does take a lot of newspaper. What do you think, Amelia? Do you think that uh, Mr. Talbot was just trying to keep journalism alive or trying to keep his arrest? under wraps or what? Well, wait, did the newspaper write an article about him being arrested or is this like something that newspapers do? They like run the names of everybody who's arrested. Police log, man. Small town. Oh, yeah. New York City girl. Yeah, this is the thing. I'm like, oh my God, is this like a thing that happens? I had no idea. I mean, I know about police logs. I thought it was just like the best of. I didn't know it was everybody. No, no, no. (laughs) See, this is why living in a small town is not a good idea. Um, Maybe he had a bird and he was just stocking up on like lining. For the, for the birdcage? I don't know. No, it sounds like, I mean, you know what? Good for him. <laughs> he was like, I don't want anybody to know, so I'll just buy all the newspapers. What do you think, Kevin? Well, it, it wasn't a well-thought-out plan because all the newspaper people I know are pretty curious. <laughs> so if one guy goes and buys all of the newspapers, yeah. he's like, hey, Seriously. I know what our story is for January 2nd. Yeah. Let's go find that guy and find out what the deal was. I would say it also wasn't a well-thought-out plan because here we are. We have a whole lot more <laughs> listeners <laughs> than that. What's his name again? <laughs> Joseph Talbot. Vice President Aww. of Banking and where? Of New York, New York, New York, not New Jersey. Sorry, Mr. Talbot. But, but the uh, cat's out of the bag. Don't drink the and drive. Newspapers. <laughs> it just makes me wonder how much China could he have been packing. But no, I do think he was trying to suppress his arrest. Right? Was China was packing. I think it's time uh, to wrap it up on that note. Laura Bricker, if our listeners want to find you online, maybe see your column about health and fitness, for which you've been getting a <laughs> tremendous amount of flack from the community of Exeter, New Hampshire. How can they find you? It's at Laura Bricker, and I have one announcement. Okay, we're ready. We have a cat of the week this week. Yes, cat of the week. Cat of the week. These people took some serious initiative. These are my local historical society ladies this week, Barbara and Laura. And uh, they do a video every week, the History Minute. They didn't have a picture of the building that was being moved in town. So for me, they put in a picture of a cat from 1929 that was prominent in the town. <laughs> oh my God. A prominent town cat? A prominent cat. His name is Fittykins Dudley. <laughs> Right now, our friend Amelia is sitting in her New York City apartment going, I would kill myself if I lived the lives that these people are living right now. She's watching self-driving cars going by, dropping hipsters off on the corner. Guys, I don't even 
never leave. I never leave the house. <laughs> this is the most exciting thing to happen to me all week. <laughs> what about you, Amelia? If our listeners want to follow you online, how can they find your writing? How can they find you on social media? You want to uh, read all of my N theta, which is the <laughs> Scientology word for, you know, it's writing that's a crime against Scientology. Anything that's a crime against Scientology. You can find me on Twitter at XOAmelia. They also find you at RollingStone.com, which, by the way, kudos to you. You're like Thanks. rock and roll like crime writer. You know, it's funny. It was one of my it was my first magazine job when I moved to New York after college. So it's nice to be home. What about you, Kevin? If listeners want to find you online, how can they do so? If uh, people want to send me, tweet to me their ideas about Scientology, I'm at TobyBallNH. <laughs> <laughs> and I guarantee that if you tweet about this episode, you will start seeing paid Scientology ads in your Twitter feed, because I know oh, I have. God. If you want to send me a tweet or follow me on Instagram, you can find me at Reb Lavoie. You can see a video of those fish eating my feet. Oh, you can Jesus find the sh- It's true. You can find the show on Twitter at Crime Writers On. Sign up for our newsletter and buy stuff using our Amazon link at our website, CrimeWritersOn.com. There you'll also find the link to send us an email with your feedback and questions please review the show on itunes it keeps us on the charts and before you close that podcast app check out our sister show these are their stories the law and order podcast we've got a great episode dropping in a couple of days featuring one of our favorite fellow podcasters patrick hines from the theater people and the broadway backstory podcasts it's one you will not want to miss our very handsome line producer is henry lavoy our theme music was performed by the new york ska jazz ensemble and used with their permission this show was recorded in square egg studio at partners in crime media aka the closet in our basement formerly known as Studio C. On behalf of all the crime writers and our special guest, Amelia McDonald-Perry, thanks so much for listening. We will catch you later. It's funny how we hear like atmospheric New York noises in the background. We never get that. <laughs> I was, I, I'm like, I have a door actually that can open out onto the street if you want to get even more of that. <laughs> <laughs> no, usually we just have like, you know, crickets chirping and turkeys running around. Uh, if we're lucky, we may get like a siren or two. You never know. <laughs> Maybe a street fight. Who knows? <laughs> Want the same expert advice you get from the pros in the store while shopping online at DiscountTire.com? Meet Treadwell, your personal online tire guide that matches you with the perfect tire for your vehicle. Get your best match in one minute or less with Treadwell by Discount Tire.